So yeah, welcome to our first ever, to my knowledge, uh, Wabash consultation event. Um, so this is exciting. We've got a few prior students in um, that have uh, been through the program, so they've sat right where you're at. Um, this is our Life After PhD event, so uh, I have a few uh, things we want to hit on, then we want to open up the floor um, to you guys to ask some questions to them, I think. Um, they will be able to uh, maybe have some wisdom for you, um, thinking back to where they were at and looking ahead to where you guys want to be. So what I'm going to do is um, let you guys introduce yourself, maybe uh, just your name, your title, um, uh, where, you're, you know, where you're at, when you graduated from here, uh, maybe what you're, who you studied with. So maybe just hit those things real quickly. So when we start with Grant and then move our way down. There is life after the Ph.D., I guess I'll say that first. Um, I'm Grant Taylor, and uh, I am the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, which that means Academic Dean, at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham. And I've been there for, for finishing up my third year. Uh, so I have finished, graduated Southeastern Ph.D. in Biblical Theology in 2014, studied with Scott Kellum. Uh, who's an excellent mentor and good friend still. And uh, more importantly than all these things, I met my wife uh, here at Southeastern. And, uh, I set that up. Contrary to his pride, did. Jake did help set that up. So I, Yeah, I yeah. ran that thing. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad to be here. Jake did not help me with my wife at all. Did that on my own? <laughs> I'm Jason Hiles. I'm the dean of uh, the College of Theology and Grand Canyon Theological Seminary at uh, Grand Canyon University in Phoenix. Been there almost five years, coming to the end of that. Uh, I studied under John Hammett, systematic theology, when I was here, graduated in 2008. name is Jeremy Kimball. I uh, graduated from Cedarville, or not from Cedarville, I teach at Cedarville University. From here, 2013. Uh, finishing fifth year at Cedarville as Assistant Professor of Theology and the Director for the Center for Biblical Integration, one of the centers we have on campus. Uh, studied with John Hammett in the area of systematics. I'm Michael Bryant. I serve as Executive Vice President and Professor of Christian Studies at Charleston Southern University. I'm a 2008 graduate of Southeastern. Uh, studied with Dr. Beck, uh, Biblical Studies with a concentration in New Testament. And uh, my wife's name is Amy, we have four kids, and it's very good to be with you. Hi, I'm Susan Booth, and I teach at the Canadian Southern Baptist Seminary and College. I was teaching there at the college level in biblical studies, and then decided uh, my husband, who is the dean, recruited me to go back to school. And so I graduated from here in 2013 with um, a degree in applied theology, a concentration in missions, but really looking to teach evangelism through that. And maybe more to the point, I'm Robbie Booth's mom. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Well, thank you guys. So we have, uh, we've been in sessions all day, um, just walking through policies and procedures and best practices, getting feedback from them on their experience in the program, how we can improve. Um, and so, just so you know, we're, we're committed to excellence and wanting to shore up those areas of the program that are weak. And um, so this is just an ongoing process. We appreciate you guys taking the time out to, uh, to come this way and hang out with us for a day. So uh, what I'd like to do, um, 
is hit two things and then open up the floor. So um, the first thing is maybe best practices in interviewing. In other words, I think that maybe uh, on y'all's mind uh, down the road is, um, and, and a number of these, three out of the five are deans, which mean that they are daily dealing with hiring uh, staff and faculty. Um, and others have um, also witnessed that and been a part of that themselves. So uh, what are you looking for? Um, we discussed this a little bit earlier today. What are things to avoid uh, in interview processes? How can a candidate set themselves apart? Um, so that's the first thing I want to deal with, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into maybe best pack practices and pedagogy and, and teaching practically later uh, in a few minutes here. So, uh, yeah, we'll just pass the microphone around if you've got any uh, comments on that. I would just say being a team player and realizing right off the bat that you're all working together, that this is a, a joint effort and you want to support and encourage one another and you don't need to stand out um, and promote yourself. So just be a part of the team. Uh, I would say it starts in many ways with your relationship with your major professor and then your other professors, how you present yourself, how you behave in class. They notice. Uh, they can recommend you. They can perhaps not recommend you. So there's the personal interaction. There's also the quality of your scholarship. Uh, that's Quite frankly, it's, it's evaluated, and so I think uh, that both of those would be very important. Uh, I would also say that it's important for me, as I'm looking for a prospective faculty member, that they have experience in the church, either pastoring or serving in the church. Maybe it doesn't have to be formally as a pastor, but I, I'm looking for someone who, who loves the local church and who is participating in the local church. I'm not a dean, but I'll, I'll just say, having been part of the interview process and as faculty, we always have say in uh, the process of interviewing candidates at Cedarville, and uh, I just have observed a few things as I've gone through, and I, th I think Sebitz is great in the sense of breadth, I'm trying to think through getting you all to think broadly across disciplines. There are times candidates come in, at Cedarville for instance, we have a Bible minor, which consists of a spiritual formation class, OT, NT, Theology 1, Theology 2. Every student at Cedarville takes those five courses, and there are times candidates come in and express a bit of unwillingness to want to stoop to the level, they think, of the Bible minor. That's for lesser beings. And I've specialized in this, and I want to teach in this particular area of Hebrews or of Deuteronomy or whatever it is. And uh, part of being a team player, again, as Susan was saying, but just being able to say I'm, I'm willing to get beyond the the narrow scope of my research, dissertation-wise, and teaching a number of areas is good. And I, I think that as well, um, there, there's something in interviewing that can reveal through the various facets of interviewing just the character of a candidate. And you can't hide that. You are who you are in terms of your own character development. And uh, interviews are made in such a way as to get to know you as a person beyond just your ability to know certain things and your writing, to say, what kind of person is this in terms of their own character, their integrity, their desire to grow in Christ? So that's a few things I think of. 
Yeah, I would agree with all that. I actually do hire quite a bit, um, full-time and part-time. I spend a lot of uh, time working uh, through CVs, and as you can imagine, there are a number of people who have a PhD in hand, and so uh, there's no shortage of PhDs. I don't struggle to find a PhD for any position I open up. And so I'm looking for things that might not be clear through the job description, a lot of intangibles. I'm looking for a fit, certain areas we need to cover in terms of subject matter expertise, uh, connection to the local church, you name it. But I can't fit that in a job description. So I would encourage you to think of a dean or anyone in that process who's making that decision as someone who's just ridiculously busy, who's not going to have time to develop a personal relationship with you. And, and also, perhaps this is going to seem counterintuitive, recognize that if you try to jump through, uh, jump over the HR rep or jump up and uh, somehow by email or by phone, establish that personal relationship. What you're saying to me as an employer is that you're pretty needy and you're going to drive me crazy if I hire you. And the, the easiest point at which to fire a person is before they've ever started working for you. And so I will do that. And, and there, I've made one exception in, in about 10 years uh, when a person reached out outside of that chain. And I, I didn't regret that, but I continue to pursue that because I had some knowledge of that person. Other than that, I normally say if you're not going to follow sort of the directions that are on the HR site, the direction of the application, I'm learning something about you that you don't want me to know. And so trust God. Uh, do your work and uh, and make sure that your professor can commend you highly if I reach out to him or her. Yeah, we um, had a good conversation earlier about this today, so I think a lot of us are trying to repeat what we said in the room to you. Um, and I think this uh, a lot of what we're saying applies whether it's a position in a church, so a more ecclesial position, or it's an academic position. Um, these, I think... Reflections are meant to cut across there. The first thing I'd say is um, character is key. Yeah, I mean, you have to be, it's going to be pretty clear that to a church, we hope if they have a good process, especially to uh, a, a dean and a faculty, if you have tabled your relationship with Christ for three or four years in order to finish the PhD, that'll show up. That'll be pretty obvious. So you can tell when somebody's just dry and intellectual and, you know, and short-tempered or whatever it is. Uh, so that, you know, that spiritual discipline of, as my mentor said to me here at Southeastern, be sure you're communing with God each day. That was some of the best advice he gave me while I was doing the, the dissertation. So that's first, and, and we would all assume that, but I think we have to state it. Uh, secondly, be someone who is serious about your craft the, the the craft of teaching and scholarship and, and mentoring others, uh, which, again, I think cuts across to the church as well. Um, and that shows up in um, negative ways. I, I see a, a lack of attention to detail. Jason has said a, a helpful thing. I would say also in applications, if you have typos in your cover letter, uh, if you misspell my name, um, I, you know, I'm not that egotistical about my name, but it just shows something that, you know, my name is spelled out correctly on the, on the ad there. And so, uh, for instance, you know, proofread, 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 and ask somebody else even to read your cover letter. Um, and, and you get one chance at a first impression that way. And so cover letters are, are helpful, uh, because, what you want to do on a cover letter is convince me to read your CV. 
because especially in Jason's case, he's getting hundreds of CVs at a time. You know, there's something. There needs to be something on that cover letter to say you need to dig in deeper here, especially if you're not known. And to to piggyback on Jason's comment about not jumping over, you know, uh, a hurdle, you should not. Targeted targeted searches happen. I am at Beeson because I got a call. Um, those those will come your way uh, rather than you know you initiating with the dean to say, hey, I'd like to get in touch with you about this job. Um, if it's going to be a conversation with you, then it'll come, it'll come your way in God's providence. And so then I think when you're interviewing, um, some things Michael said earlier, just, just to be honest about where you are and your theological position, convictions, your teaching style, your family, your, you know, just be honest and uh, let God do what he will with that. Yeah, follow up a couple things. So um, I'll, I'll start with the last thing that you you stated relative to um, theological convictions. So uh, everybody here is working at some sort of a confessional institution, uh, not necessarily denominational, some interdenominational. And so we did get into some discussion about how you handle some of the sticky issues relative to your your theological convictions, okay, or systems of thought. You know, we've we're in the middle, uh, always seems like a perpetual discussion about uh, Calvinism and these sorts of things. So what are you guys looking for um, when somebody, to, to get to know them on that level? Are you, um, what's, what's the best way to go about that? Well, again, the, you have to respect the process of the particular institution and the job as it's advertised. And, and so if you get to that stage where you're talking theology with, with a dean, um, you know, I, I like to, and I'm in the process of doing this right now, talk to the person extensively and to ask some questions, some open-ended tell me about X sort of questions that are, hasn't given him or her time to go, you know, prepare, but it's more gut level what comes out of you when I ask you about scripture, when I ask you about God and salvation, what comes out of you. Because that's what will come out in the classroom. That's what will come out uh, unprompted. So, and then, you know, in in a formal application where you've written a response to a confession, if it's the BFM or whatever it is, that's a more carefully crafted statement. And I think would be good to have that in hand before you uh, leave Southeastern. So, um, and to have in your own mind what are the primaries and what are the secondaries. Um we're interviewing you, but you should all inter- all also interview us. Um, don't take a job just because it's a job and it's going to be a horrendous fit for you, and you're going to have to sacrifice some of your own conscience to do the job. It's not worth it. So a couple things I was Anybody else have? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll add to that. So I'm in an interdenominational context. It's not strictly Baptist, but one of the things that we need to know is that if we bring a person in, when that person speaks to any issue, it doesn't matter what it is, that they can do that with compassion. So if I bring you in and you teach an undergraduate, if you say something incendiary to an 18-year-old, it could be on Twitter tomorrow, and I'm in the president's office explaining what you said. Um, and so I'm listening for that as I'm interviewing you. I'm, I'm giving you the worst-case scenario. But realistically, if you don't love a, a student, an undergraduate who's not terribly disciplined, not very thoughtful, maybe not engaged, if you don't love that person enough to speak truth to them in compassionate, careful ways, I, I just can't work with you. 
and the same would be true even if you taught at the graduate level. And so I'm listening um, as much to how you address these sticky issues as I am to what you believe about these issues. I, definitely, I need you to believe what the Bible teaches about these issues, but I need you to be able to speak those in ways that are pastoral, so to speak. You're going to be you're shepherding young hearts in many cases. And so that's a huge, huge deal. Okay. Um, so the necessity of being charitable, uh, charitable when dealing with, as Grant put it, second, maybe second order issues. I mean, there is conviction. And of course, um, we could have any number of other panel members up here that were in different types of more staunchly confessional institutions. And of course, it kind of raises the uh, idea of knowing where you're interviewing at, right? Um, maybe you can comment about that. Uh, we had some discussion about you interviewing people that didn't do any research about the institution in which they were interviewing. Uh, how important is that? And what kind of experiences have you had with um, with with uh, applicants? Um, I, I just think it's important that you go online, read the mission vision statement. Sometimes schools even have a strategic plan online. Uh, learn something about the history of the school. If it's tied to a certain denomination or tradition, Christian tradition, it's good to be aware of that. If there are hot-button issues related to that tradition, and every tradition has those hot-button issues, be prepared to answer those issues clearly, uh, forthrightly, uh, and yet uh, in a humble manner. Uh, all of those would be important. I would, I, As far as the, the Baptist institutions, a lot of times, uh, someone knows something about us. So if you have a, a friend who knows something about the school, uh, it would be good to call them and just ask about what's going on there and uh, what things are like and what the recent history is, say, in the School of Christian Studies there. I would just say if, if you ever applied to Cedarville, this is my context anyway, and, and were asked to candidate and come, you'd be there for, for two days and you would do a departmental interview with us, about 20 of us, and uh, go through testimony of faith and uh, call the ministry and any questions that faculty want to throw at you, which can be the good Lord only knows. Uh, you just don't know what's coming. So then you'll teach in a classroom for somebody and we will observe you. 10, 12 of us will observe you, take notes the whole time. You will interview with the vice president for academics, uh, the president of the institution you'll interview with as well for at least an hour. Uh, the second day you come back and do a scholarly presentation and handle Q&A from that scholarly presentation as well, uh, dean interview as well, of course. So it's a rigorous process, is what I'm trying to say. And in that, a good example of what you're saying, Jake, uh, we just hired a Southeastern graduate this past year who's taught, he just finished his first year at Cedarville and was, is a phenomenal fit, just doing a great job. But when he interviewed, it was very obvious he had done homework, he looked at the website, he had read student handbook, faculty handbook, uh, he knew our mission and vision, and he was saying things that were in alignment with what we were trying to get at in our school. It was very clear. And uh, you see negative examples as well where the, the, you ask that question, and they say, ah, well, this school does this, and this school does that. I'm like, that's, that's not who we are. And you, you see very early on that kind of fit. So it would do you well to, to, as you say, interview in that kind of a way. Hey, well, let me uh, let me on this topic then just open the floor up to you guys uh, relative to interview etiquette. All right, best practices. Do you guys have uh, any questions you want to pose to the panel? Oh, now, don't be shy. Or 
is everybody in the program? How far along is everyone? Uh, varying. Yeah. yeah. How many ABD we have in here? One, two. Okay. So this is, um, I'm sure, a little bit more close uh, on the horizon for you. Um, yeah. You, you originally got a question? Uh, my question would be, of the candidates that do get offered positions at your institutions, um, I'm not quite sure how to frame this question. Uh, how, how important would you gauge going to conferences and quote-unquote networking with uh, scholars and institutions such as your own? I'll, I'll give a short answer to begin. Uh, for me, it, when I'm looking at a candidate, I want to see that the candidate is connected to the scholarly community in a healthy way. So we're very much a teaching institution. You're not going to find high-end research professors in the mix, not many anyway. For the most part, we're, we're working with students. But uh, an instructor will just run out of gas if he or she is not connected to the scholarly community, not staying well-read, not not thinking. I mean, you can only talk to an 18-year-old for so long, and you just, you seriously, you, you get tired, and, and you're not growing. Um, so we're looking for that, and that's, that's a discipline you have to maintain. We want to encourage that. But it's easier to keep you in that mode if you're already there than it is to try to build that discipline in once you land. I was going to say that it's a little hard to answer that question because I have a general sort of framework that I follow, and then sometimes I have a specific framework. The general framework would be a pastor scholar or churchman scholar, someone who is in the world of the church, someone who is uh, conversant and engaged in scholarly activity. I don't expect a Ph.D. student to have published four books or nine articles, but I am impressed when a Ph.D. student is a member of ETS, has gone to ETS, has at least tried to present a regional paper, um, has went on a mission trip, uh, attends the church faithfully, um, just the well-rounded person, so to speak. That's what we look for. Other schools look for other things. But then sometimes I'm specifically looking for an Old Testament scholar who will help us raise the bar academically. Uh, our department, uh, our Christian Studies School at times has been strong ministry-wise but weak academically. Strong academically but weak ministerially. Uh, sometimes we lack visibility. We, we may have a weakness here and there, and so we're looking for a specific degree and someone who makes us stronger in that area of weakness. So if you're speaking with someone and, and you have, say, a Ph.D. in theology and they don't hire you, don't be offended because there's, there's a complex set of needs uh, on, on the ground and on paper, they may not necessarily think that you're the best fit or the, meeting the need. So I would say that. General answer and then a specific answer. This is uh, maybe a step before uh, interview etiquette. Um, how much of the, the hiring process from, from our end are we... Um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, sometimes you'll get contacted, which I think, you know, all of us hope for. We'd love to be reached out for and to have someone call us. But in lieu of that, uh, I know that we're, we're waiting, we're looking for openings to hear about things. Um, is that the only time that we send out a CV and a cover letter is when there's something posted or it's been requested? Or, uh, I mean, how much, how often do you guys just get CVs, uh, even though you have nothing posted? Is that worthwhile for us to even do? Or should we just be waiting until something is specifically out there? 
I wouldn't, to follow on Jason's point, I wouldn't cold call a dean with a CV to say, you know, when you have need, think of me. I would go to conferences and meet peers and professors from Southeastern who have friends at schools uh, who have needs and who know of a need because a friend of Michael's is going to know here's the particular need they have with the fit in mind. And if they know you, well, then there's a helpful connection for the CV. So there's kind of a a, a reality in which the CV is well received, if you see what I mean. And so I think the you hear you hear that as a beginning student go to conferences for networking. You're kind of like, what does that mean exactly? I, I remember thinking I gotta go print up business cards. Well, no, you don't. You know, unless you have an office here, you don't really need a business card yet. But go be there. Show that you're serious about the craft and and you're a person connected to. Um, learning the Old Testament really well and learning how to engage the secondary literature. And because as any craft, this, you know, you're working with and alongside people. And so I would say the people connections are the way that, that those CVs are kind of connected. So you want to be asking as you're finishing up your professors here and what they know and who they know and what's happening because they're probably more aware of the realities on the ground than than the student is, and that's as it should be. I, I would agree with what Grant is saying. Um, the difficulty in receiving a CV, like a cold CV out of the blue, is I don't know where to put it, and I won't remember it when I have an opportunity. Um, what I will remember is a conversation I had with someone about that area in which they said, oh, this, there's this guy I know. There's this young lady. This person has done great work in this direction really enjoyed working with them, bright mind, something like that. That stands out in my mind. Um, the other thing I would mention is if you're trying to, quote, network at a, like, ETS or um, SBL, anything like that, you have to be thoughtful about how you come across to a person who would hire. If you're using them to get a job, they're going to pick that up, and it's going to be weird. So I often go to ETS to meet up with people like Dr. Quarles, who I have a relationship with. I won't see him all year other than that meeting. And so I'm not really there um, to be used by somebody, and I'm approached so often that, that sometimes that comes off in the wrong way. So just be careful. You, you, you do need to network. You do need to make connections. But just think about how you're, you're putting that out there. All right. Um, so I, I don't actually remember who it was, but one of you had mentioned about something about uh, standing out on a cover letter. Um, and I'm just wondering... From your perspectives, because I know it's going to be different for everybody, what does that actually look like? What stands out to you in a cover letter? Well, as I, I'll start from the bare minimum and maybe work my way up. Um, clear prose, you know, um, well written in, in the clear prose and, and no grammatical errors and typos and, you know, in the form, the format of it. And um, if it's there's a mistake in the name or the first couple sentences, you know, you just kind of done and move on. So that's the bare minimum. And then beyond that, you know, in a page telling me who you are and where you're from, what your area is, and why your resume, your CV is relevant to this this position, you know. And, uh, you know, it, not a lot of 
uh, verbosity <laughs> beyond that. No, and that was I used a big word intentionally there. Um, yeah, just plainly written to tell me who you are, why you're writing, and and why you think you're a, potentially a good fit for it. Um, I, I think gets to the point for me. I think I speak for my dean here. I know pretty well thinks about this, but he would say he is looking for something in that cover letter that, that um, reveals the pastor's heart. Though we're professors and uh, though we're doing scholarship on a regular basis, um, so much of our lives is just that knock on the door saying, do you have a minute? And, and your mind thinking, no, I don't. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, come on in. You know, and you're the Lord steered your heart to be rightly ministering to that student at that point because you know there's, there's a lot to be done, but he wants to see a heart. In, in a page, is tough to convey sometimes, but a person that says, I don't just yearn to write you know, a dozen monographs in my career, but to, to love students and to engage them and to even say past experiences of how you've worked in your churches and demonstrate that pastor's heart as well. So that, that's a a really massive thing he looks for all the time with candidates that come through. Okay, good. All right. Ask your professors here for examples. So, I mean, can would you, Prof. So and So, would you mind showing me the cover letter you wrote up to get this job? Let me see what it looked like and. They'll help you that way. I mean, that's one of the most helpful ways to, to do any of this is to have a model. So, Good. Uh, Let's shift gears real quick uh, for a few minutes and talk about just best practice and practical teaching skills. What, um, what are ways that you guys have integrated different types of teaching, um, teaching practices that you have found effective in the classroom? Um, lecture, discussion, little of each. Um, what what do you find most effective? I'll start and say, so I'm an academic dean, and I supervise the faculty at Beeson, but I, at the same time, am an assistant professor early in the, the teaching career, if you will. And so I learn from the faculty that I work with some really pro tips on teaching, and something that I feel, but I'm also hearing from them, is that when you're new, you have this temptation to fit everything you know into that hour and have some backup prepared as well because you're so nervous about talking as fast as you can for 45 minutes and then everybody stares at you and you wonder, what do I do? Um, I think our best teachers are those who are very, very clear about, depending on the discipline, um, this section of the Greek text and just walking through it slowly, or if it's a historical theology lecture like we have at Beeson, one, two, three points, and you come away from that hour and a half, the students get that. So it's kind of the less is more in, in teaching that I'm, that I'm learning. Um, you feel the, the press to have so much content, but a lot of what comes through in teaching is the, the pastor's heart conveying the main point, you know, um, so I'd say that's one thing. So, Susan, I'd like to hear from you just because uh, one of the things we discussed is how at your school all of the blocks are three hours, right? And so that's a bit more of a challenging context to retain attention. What are, how, would you, um, how would you approach that? Um, 
it's interesting because you think, you know, you've got this great content that you're going to get out there and you've said it once and it means that they got it. But, you know, they're tired, they're hungry. Yeah, a three-hour block is a long time. So trying to just be um, realistic about, you know, what you want them to get and realizing they're coming at this at a different level. So the things that you go into great detail and debate and, and you know, your Ph.D. seminars are, are not what are going to be what they're after. And so I think looking at it and trying to figure out what is the, the you know, the one takeaway from this. I mean, obviously, Old Testament survey, lots of content. I want them to get that broad, overarching um, uh, view of, of what what's going on in there. But, but on the other side... Um, trying to, you know, occasionally do group work, but make sure it, it, it makes sense. It's not just a busy work. If you're wanting to get a good discussion going, often I'll have them, you know, partner up, share in twos or threes and get a, a discussion going. And then the people who are not likely to talk have already been talking. And so it's kind of prime the pump. And so, you know, things like that. Or um, uh, I also teach evangelism, which is, you know, I've I think it's so important that we're out there doing this thing. So trying to make it really practical when my bent is to go back to, okay, what does the Bible say about this? And, you know, the um, uh, theology of mission, et cetera. And so you you you've, you can easily end up in a, a brainiac mode, but I just want them out there sharing. And so trying to get that really practical about the assignments we have, but also because I know that they're out there sharing, you know, you've got to go with that conversation wherever that person is and how the Holy Spirit leads, and so it's going to be diff very different. So even though I require seven missional conversations over a semester, I actually have each of them come in my office and lead me to Christ, which is I'm the most saved and backslidden person <laughs> I'm probably out there. But it's amazing to one-on-one -on -one go through just a gospel conversation and, and things that we talked about in class all of a sudden become, you know, real because here we're role-playing essentially this thing and and so at that point I'm able to speak into and maybe direct one-on-one -on -one some of the stuff in it so it means for long hours you know I had I got saved 24 times about a couple weeks ago <laughs> but but I think you know just trying to figure out how can I get them to really get this and okay. and go deep yeah okay that's helpful that's helpful I would just say when I think about teaching I think about the end product that I hope will be produced from my lectures over the course of a semester, what kind of student do I want to produce, do I hope will be produced? Uh, and so specifically, I think about the knowledge that I want to impart, the skills that I want the student to learn, and then also the attitudes that I want the student to develop. Uh, knowledge is important. There's a basic content for every course. Uh, skills, uh, sharing the gospel, maybe tracing an argument, identifying the thesis of a, of a book, uh, but then also the attitude of a student. Very, very important. Why is it that some people are more successful in ministry uh, or in life than others? I think they have uh, the kind of attitude uh, that Scripture uh, speaks of. Uh, so I think attitude is is very, very important. And, but we, you know, we shouldn't discount that because we are we seek to impart those kind of kind of uh, things to our students. So I, I have pastoral background, which was helpful in some ways coming to a classroom. I was, it's a long story I can't share now, but I was hired at Cedarville on two weeks' notice. So not a lot of time to prep my first lecture. Um, and I have across the hall from me two Christian ed guys and then four other veterans, 20-plus years at Cedarville or somewhere else, 
that from day one were saying, any syllabi that can help you, any course notes or lectures, ways I can help you. I'm a resource. Come talk to me. I'll help you out, which was a godsend. Uh, so helpful. So uh, one, there's two things here. One, um, I often think about questions theologically. So, for example, in eschatology, I would always think about, like, well, you got to show them charts, right? you got to show them <laughs> millennial views and all this kind of stuff. And, and students in the undergrad are kind of like, okay, this is, this is fine. But I asked this one guy across the hall who's Christian ed focused, I'm going to do this today. Like, is there, what, what kind of questions would you ask? And he's, he said, well, that's great. Got to get that, that knowledge base. So you're saying, I always take him here as well. And he hands me a piece of paper that, that has passages that connect eschatology in the New Testament to, to ethics. What are the ethical ties we see there? And my students were like, charts were great. These verses were fantastic. Because I'm seeing now the connection of real life to this, not just the kind of charts that are there. It's helpful in that way. So they need both. And that was a helpful just way to, a way to ask questions. He's been very helpful to me in that kind of a way. I also, I feel more adept personally in a class of 40 to 80, doing a lot of lecture and some discussion at various points. Um, and my friend JR in philosophy and theology is amazing at the Socratic method. Amazing. If it's 10, if it's 40, it doesn't matter. He's incredible at like just back and forth Q&A. And I observe him and I think, I just, I'm not that good at that. I just watch him do what he does, and, and I, I, I felt like I got I to do better. And I, I do. I need to get better in certain modalities. Um, but my, another colleague, been there for 30-plus years at Cedarville, uh, said to me one day, he said, well, Jeremy, don't forget, uh, no one ever faulted Roger Clemens for throwing a fastball. Hmm. Meaning, like, yes, learn those things, but be you. Yeah. And, and do what you're best at in the classroom and let the – um, process go forward in that way. So it's been good to just learn, but also to rest in God's made me this way, and it's been a good thing, I think, in the classroom overall to think through those things. Um, I'll be a little more brief on this. I don't teach as often as I'd like to now. I just have too much administratively to do. But I remember as I was making that turn from seminary into my first undergraduate teaching load, I remember it was very hard to calibrate what I knew and, and where the students were to, to pull those two things together. So I always felt like when I started talking about um, systematic theology that I was sort of defending whatever position I was articulating as if to peers. And you remember, you're stepping down two levels to teach at the undergraduate level. Most people are going to start there as opposed to seminary. So my vocabulary was way out of line with where they were. Uh, my, intention, my attention span was much longer than theirs. And so I learned pretty quickly to bring it down in terms of vocabulary, to slow it down in terms of speed. This is sort of what Grant was talking about. 45 minutes, you're, you know, you've rattled off a lot. They can't follow. And I've learned to foreground the so what question. Um, so when you're, when you're writing a paper, you're going to put your thesis on the front and you're going to say what this paper is about so that people decide whether they want to read it or not. The same sort of thing helps a lot when you're trying to connect with undergraduates, gen ed courses in particular, where they may not be a major in that area. You're trying to tell them why does this matter, why am I telling you this, and why should you listen. Add one more thing. Uh, two things. So know the people, know the students in the room, something that I realize um, I'm learning and then faculty are content consistently learning is, I mean, in a classroom of 10 or 40, you have different types of learners. 
and you have you know uh, also different types of attention spans. And so, if you can know the people in the room, it, it, at least at a introductory level, it's a better chance that you'll be a, a teacher of people. That we teach students uh, subjects. We don't teach subjects to you know an empty mass. So know the people, and then second, know the curriculum. So the program in which you are teaching. Uh, I think Jason mentioned this in our conversation today, but you know you're not the only one teaching. I'm not the only one teaching at Beeson Divinity School, so I don't have to say everything about everything that they're ever going to need to know about everything. Um, there are other courses that colleagues much smarter than me teach, uh, and we have a structured curriculum, so you can kind of refer back or forward and and trust some of those things too. So. You got any questions from the floor on best practices in lecturing and teaching? You guys want to shoot at them? Yeah, Anna. So as we're moving to uh, a world that's online and hybrid, uh, what does that look like for best teaching practices and engaging students? <laughs> we we have a number of online students, and so a lot of the a lot of the misunderstanding has to do with what distance education once was. So the idea would be to somehow send out the information. It's happening in a distance. There's no engagement. Hopefully, they turn something back in. Well, that's going to drive people crazy who care about pedagogy, who care about communicating, interacting with students. Over time, online um, practices, engagement, interaction, uh, creating a social presence within the forum, the LMS, uh, learning management system, those kinds of things have become much more robust to the degree that in, in many cases, some cases at least, some of the outcomes online are superior to what happens in the average classroom. So if you can think about the personalities even in this room, if you have a seminar, some people are going to sort of fade to the back and some are going to come to the foreground, and those people in the foreground are going to engage. They're going to talk a lot. Those people that fade to the back are not going to be as engaged mentally, perhaps, but they're not going to be as vocal, and so they're not putting much out there. In the online classroom, for instance, there is no back seat. There is no, there's no back row of the classroom. You have to engage. So a good instructor is going to learn how to create enough social presence so that you know your students, your students know you, they trust you. There's something personal there. Uh, we encourage simple practices like a video introducing the class where they see your face, um, ways of, of making sure your tone carries well in that, in that environment so they don't misread it. Like, you know, if you've ever gotten an email or a text, you're like, wow, why is this person mad at me? There are tone issues you can't read in a text. Um, things like that, you have to be very thoughtful about interaction, engagement, staying connected instead of being out of, you know, if I take a vacation, I don't tell anybody. That's a, that's a huge deal in the online world. And you also, I think, have to be sensitive to the type of student. Um, very often, a non-traditional student will come to seminary through that environment as opposed to, a, opposed to a more traditional student. So someone who's just come out of an undergraduate program, 23 to 25 years old, that's your traditional student. Your non-traditional student can be 50, 60, 70 years old. They're re-careering. They're coming back into ministry. I'm sorry, they're coming back into seminary after a lifetime of ministry. You have to engage them and treat them very differently. They expect a certain amount of respect, and they expect to be treated as if they have some, they have some understanding of what they're doing. So I threw a lot of things out there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Other questions? Absolutely. <laughs> so you, you bring up this non-traditional student that's coming back into the classroom. Um, what are ways that you would interact with them differently 
uh, because that's not just a seminary issue that's going to be in the undergraduate as well. You have people who are coming back and doing bachelor's much later. So how would you approach that differently in teaching? I'll start this. Some others may want to add some things. Um, when when you're dealing with someone who's not just a very young adult, you're dealing with somebody who's um, a little more mature, um, they're going to expect um, a great deal of respect, as I mentioned. I'm not talking about a, an ego or a pride issue. I'm just saying they expect to be treated like an adult. Often their life, the, their situation in life, their stage of life is such that they're going to need some flexibility. If you try to hold them to really strict due dates all the time and they're dealing with an aging parent, they're dealing with a, a spouse who's in the hospital, or they're chasing kids around while they're trying to write papers, they're not going to understand what you're trying to do. And so you have to, you have to sort of warm them up carefully uh, to the, the environment. You have to teach them. If you're in a seminary context, you're going to have to help them understand the expectations of graduate-level study, and you're going to have to do a little hand-holding Things like PowerPoints, I mean, that is such low-level technology, it wouldn't necessarily cross your mind. That's a hard thing to create, but for a non-traditional student, it can be. Things like that, you can't, you can't act as if you're shocked. You have to love them through that. And if you think about um, how unique that ministry would be to touch a life, someone who could not go to seminary unless they came into this particular environment, I think that's something we can do and we can rejoice in and we can be fulfilled in doing that. But we have to be open to what God is doing in those situations, and that's... That's a hard issue for the instructor, and it does create some additional work that we might not think of as traditional academia, but it is, it is nonetheless, I think, invaluable. We um, are a residential cohort sort of program at Beeson. Um, something that I've discovered, not that I had this plan, but have discovered is that oftentimes our older mid-career students become mentors to fellow students. And I think that's a very helpful thing. Uh, and so if you have students ministering to one another, this is always a good thing. And even more so if you've got an older brother or sister in the faith who is walking through writing that paper together. Um, I mean, I can think of three students who always study Greek together. And it's two older and one younger. And I think it's been a pretty helpful, fruitful relationship for, for the education, but also just, yeah, for life. <laughs> yeah. Other questions about best practices? Okay. Uh, why don't we just open the floor up to just some general questions if you have those. Maybe some of you just, uh, you know, you can, the sky's the limit on this within reason. Yeah, I want to bring some international perspective. <laughs> into it. I mean, I'm from South Korea, so my English is not, English is not my mother tongue. So I, I feel the barrier that, that I have. Even I'm ministering in an American church, all American people, and I'm the only Korean. But I have to teach them. I have to preach to them. So I, 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 I see the wall be, before me. So I want to hear, as an as a administrator of, of seminaries and schools, would you be willing to hire a person whose English is not as good as other American professors yet who can bring other perspectives into the students' lives? I would say yes if the if the other some of the other criteria that we mentioned you know in terms of fit ethos um, the pastoral heart that we've talked about the ability to connect with students. And so there's almost it's 
the the ability to connect with students would almost appear even increased uh, if it's happening, you know, despite a bit of a language barrier, so I mean. So that would actually uh, encourage me uh, to see that, I think. Um, I'd, I'd say yes, in general, absolutely. Um, your spoken English is very good. We actually spoke to a gentleman um, from another country the other day by phone, and it was hard to pick up about every fifth word I would lose, and, and I couldn't follow it. And so I would listen to that, and as much as I wanted him to succeed in the conversation, I don't know how an undergrad was going to, to follow what he was saying. And so uh, there is that reality. I, I, don't, I don't sense that with you by any stretch. And so I'd say in principle, absolutely, I would be willing to hire someone coming from a different context. I say where I teach, I would say where I teach, um, diversity is important. It's very important. Charleston is a, it wants to be a global city. So uh, both at the institution where I am and then the surrounding city, the surrounding culture, uh, it's it's very important that we are global in our perspective. So I would say yes. Um, I would I would just say, you know, personally, uh, do what you can. If you feel like it's deficient, do what you can to work at it and do additional things. Maybe you might want to write out your notes or write out a skeleton so that students can follow you. Um, I, would, I would not let that be something that uh, I become consumed or worried about. I would not bring it up in an interview. Um, I would just do the very best I could and uh, try to improve uh, as, you, as you're able. I would just say accrediting agencies are putting great pressure on all schools to reflect that diversity that's um, among us and in growing and I know in Canada we're very diverse and so you know that is a, a value added but agreed that you know the the communication you want to be able to have those skills and and have that in place but yeah there's there's a lot of places where almost that would give you a leg up on on other candidates Good. some other general questions So I'm, I'm going to make this real general, and y'all can take it whatever direction you want. But I, I know in a confessional institution that the balance between the writing, publishing life, and the teaching life, there's some, some pressures there. So can y'all maybe speak from personal experience how you balance that well and you know what that looks like in a, <laughs> in a confessional institution? You need to know um, whether the institution that you're applying to is more so a teaching college or more so a research institution. We're a teaching college, primarily. Um, most of the Baptist schools, I think, uh, I'm, we're a South Carolina Baptist school. The other two schools, Anderson and North Greenville, they're primarily teaching institutions. So I would say if someone wants to serve at any of these schools, they have to teach well. They really do. At the same time, we hope that they will be involved in the scholarly community, uh, scholarly activities, uh, professional development. But I would say know the school that you're applying to, what their emphasis is. That's very true, just as a faculty member, to know. Because Cedarville, in like kind, is a teaching university, although with the president that came five years ago, our VPA today, there's much more of a push on uh, scholarship. So teaching, scholarship, service, you hear those three words a lot in uh, academic settings. And uh, so I, in my institution, am on the tenure track presently and going to that final year of decision of receiving tenure, 
and doing those things. So part of that, we have a portfolio we keep of teaching, right, and and scholarship that we're doing and service. So uh, some of these guys are teaching load at Cedarville's a four four per semester, and uh, I generally have taught I taught a five five the first three years I was there, and now I have a release with the center that I direct. So I I should be getting a four three and it's a five four usually. There's life. Multiply, so multiply that times three. So that's yeah, twelve to fifteen hours a semester that they're teaching. Just so you know how that works. Out undergrad, undergrad. Right. Yeah, just, that, that's just reality. And uh, so with that, there is expectation of you're going to produce scholarship. To which I say, good. When? Uh, and so a lot of that is going to be based in the summer. A lot of that's going to be if, if we don't teach summer courses. Looking, I, I've a project this summer. I'm, I'm hitting hard. Uh, in two weeks, we're going. And uh, it's going to be hitting that hard. And you find time. Tuesday and Thursday is a little less for me. So I carve out mornings to say the, this hour and a half is it's on my calendar to say this is research time. It is what it is. And uh, try to balance that in that way. But there's there's a lot to look at. We None of us, I think we all said, we're, we're looking at administrative roles as being like, that's what we're going to do. I wasn't planning to do a center at a university. And all of a sudden, it was thrust upon me at one point to say, hey, want to do this? And I was like, sure. But it, it involves some complications, some complexities that are good. But uh, it is, I think, just calendar schedule. You have to be rigorous in terms of how you're going to do what you're going to do. Yeah, we have, um, so I'll talk kind of institutional perspective, faculty-wide, and then personally. Um, we do have those three criteria, teaching, service, scholarship, and we also have criteria for here's what you need, generally speaking, to hit promotion from assistant to associate professor, professor, and then associate to full professor, and then if you're tenure track, to get tenure at, at about the associate level. So you'd want to be asking, finding out what are the, do you have benchmarks, how does your institution measure the difference between an assistant and associate and a full professor, for instance. Um, what, what, we, what I want to do is find someone who just does that anyway. And th because of who they are as a person gifted by uh, the Spirit to teach and to write and to serve in the church, that's what they do in outcome articles and books. Um, now, that's not the reality for every single person, but so it. For any of you, I would just ask, you know, what is the, as Michael said, is a teaching, teaching heavier emphasis, or is it more research, or is it a bit of both? Uh, we we ask for both, and I do not would not hire someone who misses in the classroom but hits uh, writing articles. It's just not going to work because we're a seminary, we're a graduate and a high scholarly level. We don't apologize for that, but you have to be able to. You got to be able to teach uh, people to serve in the church. Um, personally, I'm still learning how to, yeah, carve out that time. But what I've done is, as an academic dean, is I've started writing some articles that are related to theological education. And so I did my PhD in biblical theology, John, um, and I didn't intentionally the first year to say like well, I'm going to set this aside for three years, but kind of that's what's happened almost and I'm going to come back to it this summer which is to say to Jeremy's point do you have a plan there's something called faculty development and I'm going to sit down here next week with all the faculty at Beeson and go through reviews 
tell me about your year. We talk through it, teaching, service, scholarship, and we also talk about the plan for next year, the goals, and is it realistic, you know, what's on the what's on the burner, what's on the front burner, what's on the back burner, where your interests and you have that conversation with people in different ways at different stages of of the vocation. An assistant conversation is much different than a full professor who's got twenty five years, thirty years of teaching. So um that's a that's a bit on that. Yeah. Okay. Um we've got time for one more, Levi. And let me let me do this. I may, depending on the question, just ask one or two to if, if mine's not good enough, is that what you're saying? I'll, I'll shut you down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jake. No pressure. No pressure. Um, Hold that thing up. Thank you. So we all know the um, kind of financial crisis most institutions are, are experiencing. Schools are closing the doors. And it seems more schools are hiring adjuncts. So a lot of us will start out being adjunct professors or teaching online at a couple of different institutions. And we came into this because someone in the classroom discipled us, and that's what we, what we want. So uh, online teaching takes a lot more. What advice would you give us for just balancing that, being patient, or um, kind of weighing that with being faithful in all our other responsibilities? Does that make sense? I'll just briefly say this is a very tangible reason it's important to be an active, vibrant member of a local church with the ministry in the church. Because a teaching ministry need not be only in an academic context. I mean, does our church, do our churches not need better and better teaching? So I would say alongside, if there's a kind of a piecemeal thing that you have to do early on or for a while, the church, I think, ought to be the fixed point, really, in many ways. So that's one thing. Uh, I think that's a reality that many, many PhDs are facing. Um, I would say patience is going to be critical. Try to connect, if you can, with those institutions. If you're serving, serving as an adjunct, attend the webinars. Uh, plug in if they have a, a, like a start of the semester orientation. Get to know people. That's helpful. Um, that's not going to feel like pressure, but I have some adjuncts who are standoffish. I really don't know them that well because they are a little standoffish. Others who are very well connected, I know what I can go to different adjuncts with and what I can ask of them. Um, mentoring students as an adjunct is very helpful. So if you're able to do that, if you're near the campus where you're serving as an adjunct, that's very helpful. Uh, staying connected in the local church is huge. Um, the other thing I was at, I would add is that uh, although this is the reality, a number of folks do serve as adjuncts online or otherwise as they're waiting for a full-time teaching job. I think you have to trust that whatever God is doing during that time is actually very important in terms of, of uh, whatever his end game is, whatever his plan is. And, and I've personally learned quite a bit more from God in those moments where he's made me wait than I have in those moments where he's given me something quickly. So don't don't be discouraged. Don't give up and don't think you've wasted your time working on a Ph.D. or serving part-time as an adjunct. I served as an online adjunct all my way through here at Ph.D. I was a grader for Dr. Hammett. So this is a lot of your probably your stories, right, like what you're doing. I would say to Grant's point, uh, it need not merely be academic but also ecclesial. I would also say it need not only be national but international. I think a lot of us need to be thinking myself included, quite honestly, about the, the breadth of the globe and to recognize the need 
for good, solid theological training in the majority world. So when I was a PhD student here, I went with uh, Training Leaders International, based in Minneapolis, uh, to Uganda for two weeks and taught there, and it was a life-changing two weeks. And uh, I have opportunity where I am at Cedarville to be involved in, in short-term missions on a number of, of levels, and it's fantastic, but I think that we need to see as well, there, there are genuine, real needs around the world for theological education that are so, so readily available to us if we're willing to see them and say, I'm going to go in, in that kind of vein and pursue that kind of ministry. I, th I think what I hear you saying, and if I'm understanding you right, is you're concerned about getting a job, going through this program, actually being able to land a job one day. And I think everyone here should know that there is no promise that you will get a job. Uh, I think you, you should understand that uh, even since the time when I graduated in 2008, the landscape of Christian higher ed has changed uh, and is changing, and you cannot be certain of a job. And I would also say don't obsess over that. Don't stress out over that. Um, understand that what God calls us to do is to be faithful where he places us. And so think of the example of the Apostle Paul. Okay, Did Paul ever hold a position in a college? No. Okay, well, think about the roles, the places where God put Paul. For a time, he was a student. For a time, he was uh, a missionary. Maybe for 10 years, I think, he engaged in those major missionary journeys. For about four years or more, he was a prisoner, right? Uh, he was also a letter writer when he was a prisoner. But wherever God placed Paul, uh, Paul did not obsess over the position. He simply served God where he was. So you think of when he was under house arrest in Rome. He wrote the prison epistles. He wrote Galatians. He wrote, excuse, he wrote Philemon. He wrote Philippians, Colossians. Um, though Paul looked where God had placed him. He didn't complain. He didn't obsess over where he wasn't. He simply served God where he was. And I would, I would dare say Paul was far more effective in his ministry than many professors are who hold a position. So you need to remember that, keep that in mind. God may not put you in a position like you would like to be in, like a college or a seminary. But wherever he places you, wherever he opens the door, be faithful and he'll use you. I guess to build off of your example, I mean, Paul was a tent maker, you know. And interesting that even when he taught at the Hall of Tyrannus, you know, that he actually um, often was supporting himself. He did have churches that, that helped as well. So uh, in some ways it's what we say about, you know, uh, church planters in Canada for sure. You know, you may have to be bivocational. Well, you know, we, we all may have to be um, in, in some ways. So where, where God calls us and he's, he's given you this heart and this desire to do this and, and just be trusting him, you're equipping us, you're going to take care of us and, and you'll, you'll get us there. Hey, let's give the panel a, a hand for um, All right, thanks for coming out. Hey, just be encouraged. Um, these are just a few of Sebit's graduates that are teaching and doing administration in higher education. There's a lot more. Um, and so be encouraged. They do exist, okay? Um, so, uh, and be faithful. Um, thank you for coming out. Um, and what we'll do is we'll, um, we'll close this out. Uh, Dr. Corliss, why don't you just say a prayer for us? We'll close this out, and then we'll, uh, we will uh, move on to the next deal. Lord, thank you for these men and women, for the strategic way that you're using them to advance your kingdom by preparing others to serve in the local church and 
preach and teach your word to a new generation. I pray that you would enhance their ministries even more. I pray for every student in this room that you would work providentially to place them just where you want them and where they can make the greatest difference in your kingdom work and help us to be content and find joy and fulfillment in the labor you call us to. In Jesus' name.